We must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. Yeah, and it's you know what? It's not even about social justice. It's really about self-preservation. I think it's because of what I know about this country that it makes me concerned. And it's not necessarily just because, like, oh, I think uh, you know this will be this will be good for 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 the greater good or for humanity. It's really because of self-preservation. But I think off the back of that, everyone else wins. If that makes sense. You're tuned in to Soul Force Ones, a podcast where we take fresh and revolutionary out-of-the-box approaches to interrogating professionalism and the workplace, exploring how careers, activism, spirituality, and hip-hop, otherwise known as cash, rules everything around us. This week on episode four of the podcast, we speak with senior software engineer at Volta Charging, Jamon Douglas. And don't forget... We're about making moves and taking action. So we're teaming up with People of Color Clothing. More than clothing, it's an experience. We're also creating an experience here. So in the spirit of building and coming together, we're doing the same with People of Color Clothing. Go to their website, peopleofcolorclothing.com, buy a hoodie, a t-shirt, enter Soul Force Ones, and get 10% off your purchase. And Darius is already hooking you up with free shipping. So that's promo code SoulForceOnce at peopleofcolorclothing.com. So we'll just kind of jump into it. You know, I was, uh, to prepare for this, Jaman, I was doing some research and I figured the, the best place to go was the 1999 high school yearbook. Wow. And so... Okay. <laughs> And so there was there was a, a, a picture of you with Diziac, right? That was the Diziac crew. And so you're all in like the, the khaki colored shorts and tops. And then I think each one of you had a different color, like shoe, t-shirt. You were rocking the blue Dodgers hat. And then I think you even had a towel. And everyone had their own color, but then it all came yeah. together, right? And I was just reflecting. So you were a year older than me. You graduated 99. I graduated 2000. And you were always cool. Like, DZAC was cool. And I was just thinking about this idea of black being cool, but it not always being, or arguably still not being cool to be black. And then I was thinking about tech and how I never really considered that cool. It was always kind of like the nerdy kind of people, programming, smart cats, and this idea of tech being cool or uncool, black being cool. I don't know. I was just throw that out there. What, what thoughts come to mind? when I say all of that? Well, I, I immediately kind of hone in on uh, the fact that you use cool as a descriptor for tech because it, I would say like in the last, it, I, think, I think what happened was um, when social media sites started to become popular or integrated into mainstream society, then it became cool because folks wanted to customize their pages, right? And I, and I feel like, there was an introduction into technology because of these consumer, yeah, consumer goods, really. Because uh, we're not really talking about, you know, robotics or distributed systems. Really, what we're talking about is just kind of how, how do you how do you present yourself online on these like social media websites? So when, when you when you say cool like that, that's kind of like what comes to mind. What we're really talking about is kind of like social social media not necessarily some of the core tenets of like software programming. I'm sitting here thinking about like artificial intelligence, kind of automation and where to me, COVID has accentuated where we're going in terms of the online virtual presence, retail going out of just business as usual is different. How we live is different. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Is that accurate? And how does that relate to your work, what you do as, and what is it that you do? And how does that all relate? Yeah, so like on, on a day-to-day, -day, really for any software engineer, typically what you'll do is kind of, you usually start your day off with like a stand-up. And what that means is just kind of like, you, you talk about kind of some of the things that you did yesterday, some of the things that you're doing today, talk about problems that you may be having at work, technically speaking. 
And then, you know, you see if someone can kind of help solve that issue for you. You may interact with teams that are outside of technology or software engineering. It really depends on the type of product that your company or service that your that your company provides dictate, you know, how much you, how frequent you integrate with like other business units. And then kind of like the bread and butter is, you know, as an engineer, you just sit there and code for hours on end until like your, your, your day ends. You, and then there's a, there's a lot of kind of a cycle of kind of uh, feedback, meaning like when I finish the code, right, I need other people to, to check it before I release it, meaning that it, it you know, it goes live or it's, it's in production. And so these are kind of like processes that most software engineers kind of follow. And that, and that just gives you kind of a brief glimpse into like, you know, day to day as a software engineer. As far as like, where do I see technology going? You know, I, I still think that we're, uh, we haven't even really broke into technology, like widely broke into technology. There's still uh, wide swaths of industry, like in this country, that haven't even been digitized. And I, and like a key example is like in uh, health, right? Like hospitals. The, right now, what you're seeing is, you know, you may have like this person, they have this idea, and then they bring these engineers in to help them kind of uh, implement this idea. And that's like the the typical. But um, as you can imagine, there's government systems, hospitals, schooling, all these other systems that like are waiting to be digitized with that brings a lot of like, like when that actually occurs, you'll see a lot more efficiency just because when, when you have humans kind of doing like these manual tasks, uh, a lot of times it's uh it's, it's pretty error riddled with errors. Like when you have humans kind of doing things manually instead of letting computers kind of automate tasks. Additionally, I think as computing power continues to improve, you'll, you'll start to see more of AI, you know, take over certain parts of, of the world, for example, you know, computer vision, being able to have like a computer drive for you, autonomous vehicles. My company in particular is interesting because if you if if you're familiar with like minority minority report, some of the scenes in there, like when uh, Tom Cruise is kind of walking around and you're able to identify like individual based off of their retina scan, that technology is not that far off. So my company, for example, is tasked with kind of building out the electronic charging infrastructure for, for this country, essentially building out so that electronic vehicles can charge. And, and the way that we do that is because on each of the charging stations, we mount TVs. And so we're able to target ads at individual consumers right before they actually uh, like enter into like a grocery store. And so you're starting to see marketing get highly targeted. Like we're able to tell using like a camera, able to tell the age, gender of a, of a person. And so you, you start to kind of like build on top of that, you know, sooner or later, you're going to, you're, you know, I would imagine that we would start to integrate microphones into these things, right? So that's capable of kind of hearing the environment that it that's surrounded by. And so as you start to kind of do that, one, there's going to be a proliferation of data. And I mean, that's kind of, I think that's like a buzzword now, right? Like big data and then being able to like crunch and digest this data. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like that's kind of like where technology is going. Data is going to be key. You're going to see a lot more AI that like you've only started to, we, we just started to see it. But what's happening is um, a lot of these AI systems are extremely biased because there's just a lack of diversity in technology. And so that means when, you, when, you, when you're creating like these AI systems, if the base that you're using to kind of like create your, your, your sample data, if it's the way that it's gathered by a certain individual, generally, it's not going to be rich with data that will help you, you know, create something that actually looks or mimics what's actual, like in real life, right? So yeah, I, I think like that's kind of like where technology is going. I think like there's definitely a lot more improvements uh, within AI machine learning. And we're really just kind of, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't even say like we're middle way in, in the, this new technological age. It's really just starting. How do you feel about all these advancements and how quickly technology is, is moving? I think it's, it's one of the things that like, yeah, it, it definitely concerns me uh, as a black man. It's the reason why I feel like there's a lot more that I have to do just to become aware and make, because really like I'm, 
by no means am I an expert at any of this, right? What I try to do is kind of understand what the direction that it's going. And as long as I know, it kind of makes me feel better. It's when I don't know what I don't know. That's what concerns me, right? And so, yeah, you, you're already starting to see some of these systems that are being like taken offline because people are starting to realize when you put these systems in the hands of people that don't necessarily know how to use them, well, one, like the system's already, you know, it already has bad quality because you fed bad data into it. And so um, I think there's like an example in this country, if I'm not mistaken, where they implemented one of these systems, but it was erroneously identifying black people. And that's because of the data that it was fed into the system, right? So you have like some of these advocates of like folks that are trying to make people aware of these systems and and why we need to do like a, not more than just study about it, but you need to diversify uh, the workforces that are kind of creating these platforms because of what can what can happen. So yeah, that, that's definitely always a concern uh, for me. It really is kind of a mixed bag because if you think about all of the video footage that's coming out certainly there's the social media but then you have cameras right that are capturing uh black men being killed or or racism occurring and it's always happened for the past 400 years but we're just now getting it on camera so that Mm -hmm. people can actually believe it right Mm -hmm. And, and i was thinking about how the the black panther party COINTELPRO, j edgar hoover the surveillance And then even in, I think, 2014, 15, when Black Lives Matter got kicked off, a report came out of how undercover NYPD officers are infiltrating groups of marchers. And I think, you know, to your point about the security, it it helps us, but it also kind of presents that that big data, big brother concern. Technology is, it's a gift and a curse, right? Like you you look at uh, examples in some, some Asian countries, it's how they basically kept the curve down, right? When you're able to implement like this tracking system. So like if my phone is in close proximity to you, like you're, you're able to create like this hierarchy of all the people that I've been in contact with just by virtue of having a mobile phone in your pocket and being able to ping like other devices that you've been close to, right? So in that example, you know, like it it does give us some benefit. You just have to understand like the implications when technology is used for surveillance. You know, I think uh, like, for example, if you were to take like the justice system, which has been, which is just peppered with systemic racism, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you were to take that and feed that into some system that would somehow be able to identify if someone was going to create, commit a crime because the data is already skewed that entire system is messed up, right? And so that, like, that's my concern, is that people don't necessarily understand that part. When you were referring uh, to the curve, were you referring to COVID? Yeah, to, okay. to COVID, my bad. There's other examples of, like, companies using, like, drone technology in order to get, like, supplies to, like, remote villages. I, again, I, I think that just depending on, on the use kind of dictates whether the technology is going to be is like a service that can benefit humanity or if it could be the uh, degradation of humanity the the plan is programmed into every one of my thousand robots we we will not hesitate we will destroy the homo sapiens Develop a super virus. Better by far than an OY2K. This is 3030, the time of global unification. Break right through they terminals. Burn them all. Slaves of silicon. Corrupt politicians with leaders and their keywords. FBI and spies stealing bombs. Dissipate their plans in their face and catch the fever. Everybody loot the stores. Get your canned goods. Even space stations are having a hard time. Peace keep a seat to take our manhood, which results in the form of global apartheid. Ghettos are trash dumps with gas pumps exploded and burnt out since before the great union the last punks walk around like mass monks ready to manipulate the database or break through them human rights come in a hundredth place mass production has always been number one new earth has become a repugnant place so it's time to spread the fear that's fun to some long have we tried to extend our glorious empire out to the stars
Governors advise a virus to bring dire straits to your environment. Crush your corporations with a mild touch. Trash the whole computer system and reverse it to papyrus. So when we look to AI automation and the future and how that leads to job loss, right? You mentioned drivers, automated drivers. We don't have truckers anymore. The education, healthcare, in education, it's anticipated that there's gonna be colleges that are closing down just because of the pandemic and people aren't going to school. I read something about uh, big tech, the, the idea that you know your Googles, your Facebooks, that they might get into education. Um, it was kind of projecting the possibility that they could team up with the likes of an MIT or Harvard. You see more online education, right? So even education, healthcare, like these industries are, are changing. And so when I think of the loss of jobs in some of these industries, and I guess I'm thinking of you as a black man, and that's where the jobs are likely, is in engineering, it's in coding. You know, I opened it up talking about you being somebody who I consider to be cool, and yet you got into an industry that I would characterize as being uncool. And what does it mean, what does it look like for there to be more people of color, specifically black men and women, in an industry like this? I think like it's, it's extremely important to have people of color in this industry uh, for, the, for basically what we were just talking about. Because when you have this diverse workforce, it's a diverse amount of ideas that are out there that you're able to kind of like pull from. You're able to, you know, everyone has blind spots, but, but which is the, the benefit of having a, a diverse workforce. For me though, the, I guess the, the reason my entry into kind of technology was really just because that's what I was around growing up. And I've always just kind of had a, I guess, a mindset for really understanding things. And for, for me, it probably, yeah, it started with a, like a MySpace. <laughs> yeah. Wanting to kind of like, you know, customize things that, that was what kind of like put me over the edge and really started to open up my world as far as like all the uh, possibilities, right? Being able to control things, uh, robotics. Those are all things that just kind of interest me. And then there, there's a second part to your question that I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting. Well, I'm thinking of kind of the black culture and how American culture is so immersed in it. If you think of, you know, sports and, and music in particular, but even fashion, like just so many elements of American culture that have been heavily influenced by black culture. How would, and, and I completely agree with you in terms of everything that you were saying in terms of the value of diversity and different perspectives, because when you have tech and so much power, particularly when we talk about infiltration and surveillance and it's only white men, well, that becomes problematic. What could tech look like? What does the influence of black culture, is there an influence of black culture on tech that could occur similar to all of these other cultural influences are you trying are you trying to understand if it's a if it's possible for for black culture to influence tech yeah i guess what what would that look like or is it just there's black people in there and so that we have more diverse perspectives in tech so we can feel more well, well yeah i mean i think i think you know right right off the bat right it's just the diversity of thought which serves us all but additionally i think you know, as a, as a black man, you're you're always kind of weary, I guess, or or concerned about. Well, for me, I've always been concerned about technology, right, and and the implications. How how can it impact me? And so I feel like if if black culture was able to influence tech, you be able you may be able to mitigate a lot of these issues, right? But but of course, that just comes back to the diversity of thought, really, because it's technology. We're talking about literally like zeros and ones, binary values. It's hard for a it it's hard to kind of integrate anyone's culture into something like that. So maybe it's more so less about black culture and more about there being people in tech who have a social justice kind of lens or perspective to understand the potential implications of tech as we've kind of talked to in terms of being both a curse and a blessing. Yeah, and it's you know what? It's not even about social justice. It's really about self-preservation. I think it's because of what I know about this country that it makes me concerned. And it's not necessarily just because, like, oh, I think 
this will be this will be good for 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 the greater good or for humanity it's really because of self-preservation but i think off the back of that everyone else wins yeah i've, I've been wondering if we as people right because we we've, we've used race and all of these other social constructs whether that's gender or sexuality or ability to divide us and to maintain power and superiority of those who maintain privilege and, and part of me wonders if we will only get to this idea of a shared humanity once it's us as humans against the robots kind of that terminator situation like is that what it's going to take for us to come come together Probably some existential, yeah. I mean, COVID. Every every time, I think every time that that uh, humanity is faced with some crisis, that's what tends to happen. Like people, you know, it, because it doesn't matter what color you are. Really, it's about like I'm, you know, I I I want to live, and I and I want to make sure that you're okay, that you're doing well. No, but I I, I was going to to say this is the first time I think that I haven't been as active as I was previously when there has been like this murder of black life that's been propped up, right? And even like within my company, a lot of, personally, what I've seen is that a lot of the work has been done by white people. And so it, uh, not only that, just to see the, around the world, the kind of reaction to George Floyd, it does give me hope it, it, it gives me hope that, that we are starting to see the humanity in each other. When we were talking last time, we were talking about code switching. That didn't really resonate with you. It may have been the culture, like the distinction between tech and how people can show up in shorts and sandals, and that's arguably professional. But then that didn't really resonate with you being because you're, you're a senior programmer and so code switching, you, you, you can generally show up as your authentic self, whereas maybe somebody who's a person of color and entering this space has a little bit more difficulty with it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I showed up khakis and uh, driving shoes every day and button up when I first started working. And I wasn't, but I was also at a bigger organization. So that was, you know, that was everyone was doing the same thing. It wasn't, it wasn't until I would say probably about like eight, eight, yeah, eight years into my career when I started to feel more comfortable. And then I would say like in the last three years is really, yeah, three to four years is really when I was like, okay, the, one, I just, I can't continue to do this, right? Because it's like, you, you literally have like a, it's almost like a, a different personality when you show up to work. And it's, 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 it's like, doing that and keeping that in tune while also making sure that you're completing all your deliverables. So for, for any software engineer, it's like, you have this big problem setting your mind while also trying to maintain like this other personality. It's just, it's, it's extremely draining, really tiring. So yeah, I would say like in the last three to four years, I've just kind of thrown that out the window and it's gotten to a point where if I sense that that's the way it's going to be at a company, I won't even waste my time. But uh, it's taken about 10 years to get to that point. Some people just feel comfortable right off the bat. Like that's, that's how they show up to work um, as their authentic self already. For me, and I think it's just, just due in part to like how I was raised with my mom. You know, it's like you always want to dip your toe in the water first before you just actually jump in. And so um, that's kind of like what I've done. But now I'm starting to, you know, I'm comfortable in my own skin. And uh, I know I know like what I can do. So it's I'm at the point now where it's I just won't even put up with it. Well, we're, so when you said that, that reminded me of Boots Riley and his film. Sorry to bother you. I haven't seen that yet, but it was like filmed right up from my house when I was living in uh, Oakland. Yeah. Is is so what what was it about, you know, three, four years ago when you got to this place where you felt like you could be your authentic self? What did it look like in terms of code switching? or not being your authentic self in this environment? You mean like how did it change? Or what yeah. was that yeah. change? Yeah, what was, yeah. what was that change? How was it before and then now you you are you? Oh, because the <laughs> the the smartest people in the room, I was I was generally in their uh, circle. Like I would I would I would generally be around them or be working on the teams that that they work on. 
And so I was like, okay, when, when that happened for a few, at a few different companies, um, I don't know. I just, I think I just got to the point where like, it, it was like, yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I know what I'm talking about. Like I'm, I feel confident in my skills. It's clear just because of the people that I'm dealing with. So yeah, I need to also put that, like when I step in the door, I also need to have kind of like that level of confidence because these other people don't, they don't even, the things that are going on in my head, they don't even fathom or they're not even thinking about that. Like they come in, do what they need to do and they're out. And so I think just kind of having that, that realization that uh, like realizing that, that I was in that room with kind of, you know, like the senior engineers, the principal architects, the CTOs, basically the people that were making the decisions that like reaffirmed basically my position. Yeah, what you're talking about is that imposter syndrome, right? And that lack of that lack of confidence, that lack of, of faith. And I felt like I experienced that even at my current employer when I got the job and then I showed up and it was just entirely white. And just mm-hmm. even that self-doubt of, oh, did you hire me just because you needed some color up in here? Um, mm-hmm. and, and getting to that point of having that confidence and trusting your voice and believing in yourself that I have something to add to this con- this conversation, that I have something to contribute. So it was, it was less about the code switching and more so about kind of overcoming that imposter syndrome and, and believing in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Any advice to people of color who are entering into a space like tech where they are probably one, or they may be one of the few people of color and, and how, to, how, how, do you, how do you get from where you were to where you're at right now, where you believe in yourself? having um there's like organizations that are starting to pop up um i would call them like support groups really um like the one that i belong to is called dev color knowing that there's other people that look like you in this field that helps um because generally speaking they all we all go through like the same thing Mm -hmm. so when you when you start to talk about those things it's like okay like i know you're going through that so you know this is this is on par for the course right and I, I feel like once you once you kind of understand like you're not you're not in it by yourself, that kind of helps to give you more one just to feel supported, and then two just to give you confidence. And a lot of companies have these employee resource groups, like what you're describing. Is there anything that's oh, this is this is not a this is not an employee resource group. Uh, this particular group that I'm talking about it's called Dev Color, but it's a national org that has software engineers from I think there's like five different chapters in the states. Mm-hmm. But um, they, the companies that we, we all work at range from like Netflix, Google, Facebook, you know, IBM, it's, it's across the board, but essentially it just brings all these black software engineers together, breaks them up into different groups. And then um, once a month, we all meet, kind of talk about, you know, the stuff that we're working on at work, things that we're kind of going through, um, personal things, professional things, stuff like that. Okay, y'all, this week for the remix, we're diving in in the middle of this episode to address what Jaman just mentioned about the importance here of finding community, of understanding that you are not alone, and one, feeling supported, and two, building confidence. So he mentions DevColor, which is a network to support and empower Black software engineers. And later in the episode, he mentions other organizations doing wonderful work like Black Girls Code and Hidden Genius Project. So to those listening, do check those out. I think this is often something that's overlooked and I don't know what you think, John, but we're often focused on competition and we're sort of immersed in this, this system that teaches us that, that we have to just sort of look out for ourselves and it's me against the world, right? To, to quote Tupac. Uh, and rather than collaboration and support and community building. And so I'm wondering how has your journey been from working into the, in the Bay to working in the Pacific Northwest? Where do you feel that that support has come from? and or what has helped you build confidence? Yeah, you know, when Jaman was talking, that idea really resonated with me, and I like how you framed it in terms of collaboration and, and cooperation versus competition. And even the idea of when you work with a team, that idea that you're working together. So yeah, you might be com- meet competing against another team, but you have to rely on other players on your squad. Um, you are this idea of interdependence, right? That we are a tribe, that we're a team, that we're a community. Uh, we, we were talking to Giselle about it in terms of the role that her mother had, in terms of the sacrifice that she made. 
and then a role that Jaman has in terms of helping to help other people, particularly young black men and women, young black boys and girls in particular, I think, who are interested in tech and kind of being a resource for them and this idea of paying it forward. Um, yeah, so that inter interdependence, that reliance on other people in, in career education, we talk about the network, like it's all about the relationships that you have with people and your ability to connect with other people and to share something of yourself with someone else. And that's relationship, that's being in community with one another. So yeah, I think that definitely resonated with me. I think, I think a big part of that too is that it's essential, particularly here, right, for black software engineers with DevColor, realizing the importance of these networks that might not be at the institution or the organization that you work at, because you might not have that in that space. So we might have to sort of branch out and look at a national organization or an international organization to have that support, to have that understanding of, I can speak with these folks, they get me, they hear me. We can keep in touch and look out for one another if right, one of us is looking for a job. And I don't know how it's been for you with your work, the different places that you've worked, but how have you found or built that community? Or, and it's an ongoing process, right? What's, what's it like for you? So I started working in career education about six months ago, and I've been working in higher education for about 20 years now. And I was really taken aback by the lack of conversations that are happening or that had been happening around diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Because those conversations happen in higher education, and I'm in higher education. And considering the implications of equity as it pertains to the workplace, I was surprised that within the primary association, the National Association of College and Employers, there were these employee resource groups, right? So let's bring all of our black brothers and sisters together, LGBTQ, women, Latinos, right? It was very kind of segregated. And I get that there's, there's value in that, you know, particularly what Jaman was talking about in terms of being in community with people who look like people who think like you or share a similar ideology, right? And, and being in community. So in higher education and in, in career education, there weren't these conversations taking place. And my position was framed around some larger level efforts, but also some efforts as it relates to reaching and better engaging students of color, students with marginalized identities, you know, first generation students, students with high financial need. And I felt like where we were missing the mark was we weren't talking about their experiences. We weren't talking about their identities. We weren't talking about their stories. We weren't, we were talking about diversity, but not their adversity and what they've overcome. Right. And so I started doing that and I went to a couple of webinars because after George Floyd died, then there were a lot more of these conversations. People were, were receptive to having these conversations, right? Where I was already trying to plant these seeds right when I started the gig at the end of last year. And so I found in just being in some chat rooms, a few colleagues of color throughout the country, and there's three of them that I connected with, and we created like a webinar series called the Career View, right? So once a month, we're kind of doing like what you're doing, you and I are doing to some degree, but even just more focused on career education and that audience. And I found community in that because I was able to, and I found engaging with them in ways that I wouldn't necessarily engage with other colleagues, just feeling more comfortable. Um, and I think in relation to that, going back to what Jaman was saying in terms of that confidence, is appreciating and recognizing and having faith in your own voice and being confident in sharing that voice because you you value and believe that you have something to offer the world that there's something of value in what you're saying and i think there's that confidence where you don't question yourself anymore there's not as much of that voice in the back of your head that's questioning your intentions or questioning the value of this but you you authentically believe it and i think that's where Jaman was talking about it taking him 10 years to get to that point where he truly recognized 
his voice and the value that he brings into a space like this. I think there are a lot of reasons why these spaces and these organizations and networks that he's talking about are so key. And I could, I mean, we could dive in a little bit and say maybe that's why some of these initiatives at larger institutions, short little trainings that they do, like that's not going to cut it because we're not building a community. We're not building or changing the system or the structure itself. We're just doing little trainings and thinking that that's enough. But as far as right, what it takes to feel a sense of belonging, I think it's well beyond what a training can provide. And I think that's what's needed. That sense of belonging, that sense of community, of support, of care, and of comfort to where you can just be yourself, especially right where those paths cross, where you can be yourself and you're comfortable and you can do something related to your career. Oftentimes for black and brown bodies, what what they have to contribute isn't valued in the same ways. And so this idea that I got to check who I am at the door. And I think that also relates to faith and to a number of other identities that we have that we tend to feel aren't relevant or appropriate in that space. So I can't shake hands a certain way. I can't talk a certain way. can't dress a certain way. Even though in my personal environment, I might be really comfortable in that. And I think, again, that's what I found in that career view space was an ability to be authentic in a way that I wouldn't have to be afraid would make somebody else uncomfortable. I love how you mentioned that about not having to check yourself at the door. It makes me think of how much is lost when we have to do that, how much is left outside. Of course, I relate it back to education, thinking of how much our youth have to check at the door when they go into those spaces and how much better and richer and more creative and healthier it is when you can be your whole self and seen as your whole self, which I don't think we do in schooling spaces. I think we rarely do it in professional spaces. And so what that's like when you can do that, it's humanizing. But see, you, you all in education, I feel like, and it's interesting because I work in career education, right? And you're in education. My sense is that in education, you all have been having those conversations. So yes, the, the mainstream, the, those in power may not necessarily be on board, but the conversations are happening. My sense in career education, and I'm new, so very well it may have been that the conversations were happening. I just wasn't at the table or aware of it because I'm the new guy in town. My sense is that they just weren't happening. No one is talking about abolitionists within career education, right? The way that at least, even though it may be a minority or a small group of people perhaps, I'm sure that audience has expanded and widened over the last several months. But I don't know that those types of conversations about the people's history and how we're delivering education and what narrative, that hadn't been a part of career education. My sense is that it's been a part of education, but not career education. I think to some extent, yeah, it has, there's always been critical pedagogues and folks in education pushing for that since the beginning, right? Doing that work. But large scale, our policies really haven't changed that much. Schools are still super segregated. Communities are still super segregated. We're still categorizing students by their English proficiency, which is super dehumanizing because that's all we see them as. And policy, right? Research aligns with very well with that abolitionist teaching critical, critical pedagogy is a little bit different, but it aligns with that. Research aligns with what you hear from students and families, but policy does not and practices do not. And so we're still like a lot of the conversations that we're having, we're still back 50, 60 years ago having the same conversations. You know, and there was something else that Jamon said connected to community. It was earlier in the conversation where he was talking about and describing what software engineers do. And it's interesting because that whole approach, even though it is coding, like so my sense is that Jamon, hours on end, sits there in front of a computer and does the coding. That's his specialty, his expertise, his code, and knowing those various languages. But then he also mentioned how at the beginning of every day, they'll come together as a team 
and Jamon might talk about a problem that he's having and others are contributing and they're working together to figure out how they can support one another. How can I approach this problem in a way that maybe Jamon isn't aware of and offer him a solution, right? So there's this give and take, there's this teamwork. And so bringing that kind of full circle, and he mentioned that full circle, I think that's the soul force oneness, that connection, right? We're connecting resources, we're connecting ideas, we're connecting people, and this idea that with a team, we are connecting all of that together. That is the essence of a team. And that happens with software engineers the same way that it happens with a team on the basketball court in terms of knowing your role, knowing how you can contribute. Would you say that the interview with Jamon impacted at all the way that you see your role, the work that you do as far as maybe bringing in some of these networks or mentioning that as sort of a priority to the folks that you're coaching and or maybe trying to build opportunities for folks in the work that you do to connect with those types of networks? I think that's what folks in career education have already been talking about is kind of networking, right? It's just the language that we use to describe that because a lot of people think about the network, they think about the... But not, I wouldn't say network, like networking, like the traditional, right? You network by forming contacts with or connections with people at different companies in the hopes of getting hired there someday. But right, but that's they, how people approach networking. It becomes very rigid and in the box, right? And I'm saying we got to reapproach even how we think about networking because it becomes so much more complicated and cold and business and corporate-like as opposed to networking is my community. It's my teacher. It's my friend right? It's not just people who necessarily work in the industry that I want to get a job in, but there's this reality that I can learn from them. And I think that's what we're trying to do with this podcast is bring in regular people oftentimes who have a story to tell, who have some wisdom to drop and to recognize that there are people in my network who aren't necessarily a lawyer or a CEO or the the top person at this company that have something from which I can gain, whether that's information or access. And so let's mine our experiences, let's mine our community and, and recognize the value that's there. There's values in my experiences that I often discount. There are people in my community that I often discount and don't recognize the value that they have to offer. If I would just take a second to just shut up and listen, quite frankly, and to ask for help right? To, to know that it's okay to ask for help and to know how to ask for help. Yeah. I'm always curious of, I was just talking to a friend and, and they asked me about a couple questions for this series that they're doing, this podcast series. And it was a question similar to what you mentioned as far as like, what do you think, what value do I have to offer the community? And I always, I was like, is that a very capitalist way of thinking of oneself? I think there's value of different types, right? But as far as the way we think of like, cultural capital, community capital, wealth, the way we talk about these things. I think we could critique or push back on that some as well. But I just think of, to, to jump back a little bit, I think in addition to networking, I heard a scholar and, and activist and artist, Jason Magabo Perez, that came to OSU and did a, a creative writing workshop and then gave a, a talk. And he just talked about like, even just in writing, the people that you cite thinking about it as like building your team who has your back, right? Because a lot of the stuff that we do and that we engage with and that we have to confront every day is it can be a struggle. And so if you think of networking beyond the traditional sense of how, how we've been taught to think about networking and we think about it in terms of building your team, building a family who has your back going into all this, whose back do you have? That's going to be different than traditional ways of thinking about networking where it's like, yo, here's my card. Oh, you see my face. You know, I'm trying to impress you so that later maybe I can get something out of it to, I think maybe a more community based approach or folks with whom you feel like you belong, you have common goals, you're working for something similar and I got you. And that could be people in all kinds of fields, right? Like in education, like I said, I mean, people in, women, gender, sexuality studies and queer studies and ethnic studies, 
anthropology, sometimes I feel more in tune with the work that they're doing than I do in education because we might be less you, you critical. You said something. You said, you said, who's back do I have? Oftentimes with networking, we're interested in what can somebody else do for me? And what I found is that when you pay it forward, right, it's better to give than to receive. So if I call and hook you up with my friend over here and I make a connection, I am a part of that connection. I'm a part of that relationship. I didn't connect you with my friend over here thinking, what am I going to get out of that? It's the same way that if I, if I, in terms of dating, if I have a friend and I hook you up with my friend and then you are now dating and you end up getting married and people ask, how did the two of you meet? Well, John connected us. I'm a part of that story, right? And so this idea that if we actually, instead of thinking, what can I get out of this experience? How can I benefit? But consider, how can I help somebody else out? I think that you'll find that you'll benefit and it pays forward, that you actually gain from facilitating a connection between other people. Um, and that oftentimes with networking, we focus on the quantity, like how many people can I build up this network as opposed to the quality of our relationships, right? Like, so you don't actually need 500 mentors. You just need one or two. Do you have, do you have champions or sponsors, people who are going to, who, who, like you said, are in your corner, who got your back, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and developing quality relationships with people as opposed to getting caught up in the, the quantity of that. Yeah, and to take it full circle back to what you were mentioning earlier, that interconnectedness, it makes me think a lot of Buddhism and something I've always found beautiful about that philosophy and that we are all connected. And I think it goes beyond just people, right? To the environment, to other animals, to everything. I mean, it's, we are interconnected. And so we're all a part of creation. We are not separate from that. Just as you are not separate from me at the end of the day, like there's this common source, this common denominator um, from which yeah. we can be reduced to. Jamon, you're from the Bay. You still live in the Bay Area? Yep. Just the changes that have gone on, tech and gentrification, seem to go hand in hand a lot of the time. Thinking of the Bay Area, thinking like Seattle. Yeah, you're thinking like the heavy tech centers. Yeah. Yeah. I think like if there are efforts or if folks are talking about that within tech of like how can we maybe incorporate ourselves more into the community or – because it is a cultural shift, right? There is, but there's also, because you're, we're talking about primarily transplants, there's no interest, right, in kind of maintaining whatever culture was there. Because it's like, you weren't there, you never experienced many of these things, so you there's no interest to kind of keep that going. Whereas for me, for example, it's like, I definitely want to, I've been here, you know, I, I, I've seen the changes. It's, it's a gift and a curse, right? Like you look at downtown Oakland, it, there was no nightlife in downtown Oakland 10 years ago. Now, you know, you can all kind of places to eat. There, there's places to, to like, if you like to go out to bars, like all of that. My whole issue was the fact that like, how do I grow up in a region that is considered to be like the, the tech capital of the world, right? With a, a vast amount of human capital how do, you, how do you grow up in that? And uh, the folks that grew up in this area weren't given the, the tools, weren't given the training. There's no reason why each school or a majority of schools in the Bay Area should be feeder schools for like a lot of these companies. So I, you know, I always struggle with that. It's, it's also why like I've kind of, my, my whole thing is let me learn all these things because I know on my path, I'm going to meet people that are going going to be interested in this field and I want them to have a easier time getting into this field than I did right it's the reason why I'm always interested in trying to if someone shows interest in in, in technology I'll pull them up and spend however much however much time I need to spend with them to get them into this field um, just because I, I I see what it's going to be like in the next you know 10 to 20 years yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a travesty that we're, we're kind of at this point where, you know, people are literally just hanging on like by their fingertips trying to stay here in, in the Bay Area. It should it should definitely should not be this way. But, you know, I don't I, yeah, I don't I don't really know what to say about that. 
I don't know if it's just because of the prop, uh, when that one prop was signed, I think it was in the 80s or uh, regarding property value, when that came into play and then it messed up the education educational system. Mm-hmm. Or if folks, you know, if we're talking about systemic racism and people just felt like folks didn't have the aptitude to get into this field. I don't, I don't really know what it is, but it's, a, it's definitely a travesty. What is yeah, part of the solution? Great. Is it to like, teach tech in the schools? Is it, you know, we're talking about Oakland, so the, the inner cities and, you know, the black and brown kids. Is it to, you know, that idea of automation and, and where we're going into the future? So is there, I'm sure there's nonprofits in their groups that are, that are trying to provide that opportunity, right? Yeah, I think, I think it, you, you know, you, we basically just came full circle, right? Like when you talk about making tech cool, how you know what are the interests of these folks that will kind of bring them in a tech right because i think that there's 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 like i said there's a lot of the world that's not even digitized yet so that means that there at at, there's some angle in which you can get people interested in tech whether it's music it could be fashion maybe someone's interested in gaming it's as big as your imagination really can think. I think I think if, if we kind of took that, made that mental shift in our mind to, to use technology as a tool to connect with people, I think then you would probably get a different result. There are a few um, nonprofit orgs out here. Like I think the, the most popular one is uh, Black Girls Code, but then there's also like Hidden Genius Project, which focuses on young Black males and trying to get them interested in a tech. There, yeah, there's a plethora. I don't know how well they're doing now, but those are the, like the two top ones that I know of here in the Bay Area. So there are people that are trying to do that, you know, but I think like it needs to be on a grand scale. And not to say that like everyone needs to be in tech because that, I definitely don't think like that's the answer. But I think that there are folks that may have an aptitude for technology that maybe just were never exposed to it, you know? But I think, and I, I know very little about tech, but my sense is that it is a form of creativity. Like when we're talking about black culture, I think of creativity, right, and innovation. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, to me, it lends itself in that it's just a matter of it being relevant. So when we talk about education, we talk about history and making it relevant to the very people we're teaching, because so long it's been the master narrative. It's been white men's history. And so we're talking about decolonizing that history and the people's history right so then i think about the relevance of tech to sports and music i mean i think nowadays the players they're monitoring their heart rates and they're doing all of these different things to help prevent injury like there's Mm -hmm. an infusion of technology and so helping our black and brown brothers and sisters realize that it's not just necessarily getting on the court but there's a whole opportunity to be associated with this industry that could come through tech perhaps. Oh, totally. Um, you can apply that really to any sport if you, if you wanted to, maybe it, it might be how to perfect like a shot. Like, you know, if you're, if you had a, like a, a camera that's able to take like um, high speed frames, you, you start to like look at the way that someone is shooting like a, a basketball and able, and you're able to kind of like perfect it based off of data. Like there's so many different aspects and facets to like technology that can be applied to, to just regular mundane things that you generally don't think about. And you just need to be kind of exposed to it to understand like, it's really about, like you said, um, how creative you want to be. I think that that's, and that, that's really the, the part that I love about it. it I think technology is really um, could be a tool um, to be used as like the great equalizer. Um, um, for example, like, there was a kid, so there, when corona, uh, COVID first started to happen, I would say like in February or March, there was a kid, I think he was in high school, um, he created this website um, that was just a, a real generic tracker. He was really just scraping data from other websites, but it became, within like weeks, it became like the, the most trafficked site in the world. And I think like that's the power of tech, mm-hmm. as long as you yeah. have a computer. I mean, that, that's, a, that's another thing that I think about is like, as it pertains to like academics, my wife is a, so she's a principal for a school and you, uh, it's a charter school. And so you have these people that don't necessarily come from the community that they teach, trying to create rules and processes in the time of COVID, right? So like, 
how, how are they going to c- conduct learning for the next school year? And a lot of these leaders were kind of, they were just like, okay, well, what we'll do is uh, we'll give all these people computers and then, you know, everything should be good, but really not taking into account that, you know, like some people don't even have internet access. So, you know, just kind of understanding these things is, is, is so important right now when it, when it comes to tech. And that's perspective, right? Being able to put yourselves in someone else's shoes and kind of going back to that idea of shared humanity and seeing something from somebody else's perspective. And I think that is the value of having diversity in tech or whatever industry it is, because you have those different perspectives. Oh, and then by the way, uh, Google Google's already been working on, on a school. They, they, they have one. It's up here. Um, I think there was an alt school and there's a shock which is spelled, yeah, C-H-A-L-K, I believe. But they've already been working on curriculum. Here, here's the, the crazy thing is that what these companies are starting to do is, is they, they branch off and create like a, another arm, which is kind of like a, their nonprofit side. So Facebook is like literally doing this right now. It's called, uh, I think, Zuck and Chan Initiative, I think it's called. But I mean, they're, yeah, they're doing some wild stuff. Like they're in education. They're into like, interacting with uh, like civic engagement and there's another one health that's under that's under the zucker uh i can't remember the name zhi but yeah that's under their 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 company uh which is priscilla and uh mark zuckerberg's like their their nonprofit arm what, what are the implications of that is that the same thing where it's kind of a blessing and a curse Def, well, just looking at Facebook, I would imagine that this is probably going to be bad. Yeah, because they just they have enough money to like really start to do some things. And so I just don't know what they were. Um, the way I found out about about it, um, I was supposed to be interviewing with them. But I just that was another that was one of those things like when you say or do something I don't like, then, I, you know, it, it's like I'm done. But yeah, they uh, I they didn't they didn't really ha- give me a lot of information about what they were doing. But I just remember that those are the three sectors that their that particular organization focuses on. And so I think you're going to start to see a lot of these companies start to get into, you know, education for one, uh, the criminal system. And I just don't I don't really know what the implications are of that. When you say you're done. To me, that's because what they're doing doesn't align with your values. I think of that as in the broadest sense of kind of spirituality, because you have values, you're not willing to compromise those values, you stand for something. And so when that opportunity comes knocking on your door, you walk the other way. Yeah, yeah, I'm at a point, yeah, I could stand on my on my values now. I wouldn't say that I was doing that like when I first started. Is that because you have you're you're now older and wiser, or because you're more financially secure, and so you don't have to do that kind of sell your soul, so to speak? Because I uh, because I know I can. I mean, there's a shortage of software engineers, so I know that the the, the demand's high enough where I can be picky if I want to. So is that, that again going back to that confidence? Like I value my worth. I value what I add. And I know what that worth is, so I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, thank you so much, John. Yeah, no problem. No problem. A special thank you to Jamon Douglas for joining us here in the booth on episode four. You can reach out to him on Twitter at DZIAC1906, D-E-Z-I-A-K-1906. You can make sure to follow or subscribe on iTunes or Spotify at Soulforce Once Podcast. And you can also find us on all the socials to interact, send questions, or support. The track this week was provided by Deltron3030, Virus. If you haven't heard that album, it's a classic. As always, thank you to OJ the Producer for the theme song that you hear right now. You can support him at ojtheproducer.com. Join us next week for episode 5, featuring Sandra Hernandez Lomeli, artist, organizer, and director of Latinos Unidos Siempre, a youth-led social justice organization in Salem, Oregon. We talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, youth organizing and advocacy, and so much more. And lastly, don't forget to pick up your goodies at peopleofcolorclothing.com. 
Use the promo code SoulForceOnce for 10% off of your order. Until next week, y'all. Peace. Twitter is, uh, I think it's DZIAC1906. That's D-E-Z-I-A-K-1906. I mean, I'm not really active a lot, but um, you know, when I do get pings, and I'll respond. But yeah, like if anyone's interested in any type of tech, um, definitely reach out. I, I at least can pull some resources for anyone who's interested in going that, that route.